I used to serve on the board of a great group called Outdoor Discipleship Ministries. We, uh, we took people on adventure trips in Arkansas and Texas and Colorado. One of my favorite standard trips we had was when Keith Meyer, who was one of our tour leaders, would take a bunch of young men to a mountain in Colorado. We used a couple of different ones. The young dudes were always the same. They wanted to launch out right away. Uh, they, they would get out of the van, and if Keith didn't stop them, they would just take off straight up the mountain, which is a really terrible way to do mountaineering. And, and in fact, jumping in with no planning can lead to very serious problems. So Keith would make them all stop. He'd make everybody gather together. He would walk them again through the objective, through the tools that we had, through the route that we were going to use to the summit. And once everybody understood the plan, then he would remind them again about all of the clear signs they needed to look for along the way, signs that something was going wrong, that the men needed to know the danger signs so they could make important in-course corrections. Once that was all done, then they could start the climb. Well, recently I was reminded of those, of those ODM adventure sessions while I was reading a chapter in the Bible. I was reading the book of Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5 is like the planning session before you start a great climb. Friends, this spiritual journey that we're on is like an awesome mountaineering adventure, isn't it? Look, it's beautiful. You and I get to stand up on God's word and see the amazing vistas of God's grace. We get to behold the awesome top-down God's eye view of life. But... This climb is also hard. Often it's really hard, isn't it? We are beset by harsh environments. We are exhausted. We are in danger. And because of this reality, God wants us prepared for the everyday climbing adventure that we have in Him. So, in Galatians 5, He sits us down to describe our life here on the great climb. Look at Galatians chapter 5. It's in your Bible right after the Corinthian letters. Go to chapter 5, and let's read verses 1 through 6. Galatians 5 1 through 6. Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand firm then, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note, I, Paul, tell you that if you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to keep the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by law are alienated from Christ. You have you've fallen from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. As we say in your notes, oh, you got a bulletin when you came in. Open your bulletin up. Look on the left-hand side of your notes. The Apostle Paul sits us all down together, and he says, here's the plan. Faith working through love. The big idea, the overall plan for our daily climb is faith working through love. And if one wants to make that climb every day, then one must keep this objective in sight, freedom. The objective is to be free. No one has ever said it better. No one has ever said it more succinctly than this. Christ has liberated us to be what, everybody? Free. free. To be free. Jesus died and he rose again so that we could be free. Can I tell you a really sad story? When I was a little boy, milkweed plants, I know, it's sad. Milkweed plants grew wild all along the creek behind my house. In fact, they even grew up along the fence lines in our, in our backyard. My parents warned me when I was little that milkweed's poisonous, so we never touched it. But we never took the plants out because they were very important to the monarch butterflies that migrated right through our area. The monarchs would lay their eggs on the milkweed, and then those eggs would turn into larvae caterpillars that then ate, ate the plants. When I was six years old, my mother and I captured a monarch caterpillar, and we put him in a big jar with a lot of milkweed and some sticks and a bunch of air holes, and we watched him eat for days. Our caterpillar shed his skin four or five different times, and each time he was a little bit bigger than he was the time before. It was really fascinating to watch. And then the most amazing thing of all, after a couple of weeks, he spun a chrysalis. 
It, it was fascinating. He stayed in there for about two weeks. In fact, near the end, his, um, his color pigments were released so you could see his uh, orange and black through the, through the chrysalis. It looked almost transparent, and it was just beautiful. My teacher asked my mom if we could bring the whole jar up to our school, to my second-grade classroom, so everybody in our class could see the adult monarch butterfly when he finally emerged, and so we did. And one morning, it happened. The butterfly crawled and ate his way out of the chrysalis, and my whole class just stood there transfixed as we watched him just beating his majestic wings, drying them out, and then, and then Mrs. Tomberlin opened the jar lid, and she opened the window in our classroom, and our butterfly flew away. And then it was time for recess, so we ran outside to play. We'd been playing kickball or something for a little while when John Mutes, my good buddy John Mutes, looked up and he said, hey guys, come here, the butterfly's back. And we all ran over to the side of the building, and there he was. he was. He was in the sunshine, warming himself in a spot on the brick. And the whole class just got in, and we were watching him just beat his wings. And right then, a kid who shall remain nameless <laughs> came running into the group and smushed that butterfly right into the brick. Just laughed as he just destroyed it. And then he took off, and he wasn't laughing anymore when he took off because John and I were looking for him to smush him. Now, before you send me bills for the therapy you're going to need in order to recover from that story, <laughs> understand the point of Galatians. You were purchased by Jesus so that you could fly free. But there are people who love, they love to run in and smash your freedom. They'll come in and they tell you that your, your justification, your right standing before God, it comes by something you do. They'll, they'll violate scripture and say, you're justified not by faith, but by works. I told you the horrible butterfly story so you could see what your salvation looks like from God's perspective. The son and the father labored together to set you up with real liberty. They watched you. They, they doted on you. They provided for you to become free in Jesus. Don't let some numbskull come running in and smash that freedom. Fly away. Fly away from that evil. Look what God had Paul write earlier in the letter, chapter 1, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. Don't lose sight of the objective. You who trust Jesus are free peoples, and you are meant to live like it. In the very mortal words of Elton John, you're a butterfly, and butterflies are free to fly, fly away. In the immortal words of the apostle Paul, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. All God's people said, may it be so. Now, unlike poor Mrs. Tomberlin, God knows there are stinkers around who would smash your freedom in Christ. He knows it's a harsh environment. Therefore, look what he does. He gives you this protective equipment to see you safely on your spiritual climb. He totally provides for you everything you need for life and godliness. Look at your notes. We list some of the equipment God's given to meet the objective. Verses 1 through 6 detail God's provision. The list includes a number of gifts, starting with God's grace. God has given you grace, so don't fall from it. Paul even says that those who are trying to earn their justification, they are outside of God's grace. Far from relying on Jesus, they have fallen out of his grace. Now, I need to get theological for just a moment. Verse 4 has sometimes been used to, to state that Christians lose their status. It's been sometimes presented that Christians have somehow lost their justification that they had. Friends, that is in no way what Paul means. It can't be what he means. Let me illustrate what he does mean. My house is getting older. And recently, we had to replace a bunch of power outlets because they wouldn't hold cords any longer, right? The, the plugs kept falling out of the power source, losing, whatever you were, losing the power for whatever you were working on. It's like this lamp. I stole this lamp from one of the offices here. 
to illustrate the point. Just look here, boys and girls. Here's the plug. Here's the cord. When I plug the cord into the lamp, what do we get? Light. If it falls out of the power source, what do we have? Darkness. It's pretty binary. This isn't really difficult, okay? Plugged in, what do we have? Falls away from it, what do we have? Now tell me, does it stop being a lamp when it's unplugged? Still a lamp, okay? It's still a lamp. It just can't shine. It cannot do what it was made to do if it's not plugged in. In the same way, Christians who fall out of grace don't stop being Christians. That would be absurd since Paul calls them brethren. By the way, quick note for you. Every time you see the Apostle Paul use the word brethren, he only uses it ever of justified believers in Jesus Christ. And he calls these people brethren all the way up until the very last verse of this book. We don't become unchristian, but we do stop shining when we fall out of the power source of grace. We no longer experience God's power. You know what we do? We start trying to shine on our own, which is a tragic impossibility. God's grace does us no good because we're not plugged into it. God gives us equipment for the climb. He gives us grace and, and God's spirit. That's the next one. So trust him. It's God's spirit who is present in the sealed soul of every believer who helps us stay plugged into grace. It is the spirit who gives us the strength and the eagerness we need for the long life journeying up this mountain. We're going to talk more about God's spirit a little further in the chapter, but it's important to note here that God's spirit is with us. He is our great help each and every step of the way. Finally, we are endowed with God's love. Look at verse 6. So, so let your faith work out in love. God has given me immeasurable love that I do not deserve. As I trust him in that love, I'm changed. You know, you know what happens? I become someone who loves others as I'm loved. My faith works itself out in love. Two of my favorite old theologians thought a lot about this verse. Look at what they said. Uh, St. Augustine said this, love God and do what you will. Uh, Thomas Merton, the great Puritan, said sin is captivity and love is liberty. Augustine is telling us that when we love God, when we love God, we can do whatever we desire. You know why? Because the love of God constrains us. We then reveal faith working out in love. We don't, we don't need a million rules. We don't need a whole bunch of policies because we will live out what we've received. The love of God constrains us. Look at Merton. Love is liberty. If you want to stay true to the plan's objective, that Christ set you free to fly in freedom, then you will love. That is what is natural. If you're plugged into grace, you are overwhelmed with your freedom, you're overwhelmed with God's love, and that expresses itself in love for others. The, the Greek word here is agape. It's a, it's a word that meant sacrificial love, other-centered kind of love. That's the plan. God equips Christians to work out our faith in love, keeping our eyes on the prize of living free. But there are problems along the way. And we need, to know, we need to know what the signs of danger are, the signs of trouble in the plan. And thus Paul wrote verses 7 through 12. Take a look, verse 7. You were running well. Who prevented you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from the one who called you. A little yeast leavens a whole lump of dough. I have confidence in the Lord. You will not accept any other view. But whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. Now, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I wish those who were disturbing you might also get themselves castrated. Stop there. <laughs> Two dangers of which we must be aware. The first is unbiblical company. Parents, have your kids ever come home with a really insane idea? They come home from school or some party or some gathering or even church and they have just, uh, I, 
there are Martians in downtown Dallas or, uh, um, or, or all Christians are evil or a man never really walked on the moon. Your kids ever came home with some really weird nonsense idea? Raise your hand. Some inanity. Raise your hand. Okay. A lot of you have experienced that. Your parents raised their hands. I just want you to know that. Um, the, uh, what was your response, parents? I bet, you, I bet you it was the same as the Apostle Paul's. You said the same things here. Who told you that? That's ridiculous. Why are you hanging around idiots like that? Right? That's what you said. And though God loves everyone, he does hold people accountable. And those who confuse God's grace, they're going to pay a penalty. If you're hanging around with people who ruin grace, it is, a danger sign, it is a danger sign for you on your journey. Look what he's saying in verses 9 through 10. This sounds an awful lot like my mom. My mom on multiple occasions told me, son, those are the kind of people who end up in prison. Those are the people who end up in prison. You hang around people like that, you're going to be in prison. Look out for unbiblical company. They really are imprisoned. Second warning sign is confusion. You see, there are people who get confused, maybe even well-intentioned, but they, they, they'll, they'll tell you that grace is the easy way. You're just taking the easy way. Or they'll call it cheap salvation. You're just, you're just having cheap salvation. Paul laughs mirthlessly at this nonsense. He undoes that confusion by showing that grace, <laughs> look at it, grace is far from easy. Why is he tormented? Why is he persecuted? Because he's standing for grace. Standing for grace will always get you attacked. Humans always want to earn their own way. Thus, the need for Jesus to come and die on the cross is offensive to people. That's why they say things like, to be saved, you must be circumcised, or whatever the favorite work of the era might be. This confusion about grace is a means to keep... You know why, the, you know why people do it? It is a means to keep from acknowledging that we are lamps. We cannot shine without God's grace. We have nothing to offer without the power source of the Lord. So when you see these problems, when you see unbiblical company and you see confusion in your life, stop and reset on your journey, okay? Okay, just please, tell me you will. Just say yes. Yes, we will. All right, amen. Now, the next section is much more compact. Let's read verses 13 through 15. For you are called to be free, brothers. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the entire law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. You'll see on the right side of our notes this headline, execute the climb by serving one another through love. Execute the climb by serving through love. Here's how you climb. The objective is to use your freedom for loving service. The question isn't what you can do as a Christian. Augustine was right. The question is what you will do. Will you use your free justification to grow in sanctification, to grow in holiness, or will you waste your opportunities? Paul reminds us one of the best ways to maximize our opportunity on this life climb is to use our freedom to lovingly serve others. I was at Walmart last week getting some stuff for our, uh, for our church uh, staff Christmas party. Actually, I should say trying to get some stuff. There was one item I could not find, and I was in the right section, and it wasn't, it wasn't anywhere. Couldn't find this thing anywhere. And I finally turned, I didn't want to bother her, but there was a, a, a lady who was stocking shelves over there for Walmart, and I finally asked her where I might find this item. And she said to me, oh, dear, and she stood up really slowly, oh, dear, that's all the way on the other side of the store. That's over on aisle four. And I said, okay, I'll find it. She said, no, let me show you. I'll take you there. And I felt kind of bad because I wasn't sure how much more wear and tear this lady could handle. I didn't really want to wear her out, you know. <laughs> But she looked at me and said something so profound that, that, that when she left me, I wrote it down in my phone. She looked at me and she said this, and I quote, it's my pleasure. That's why I'm here, to do what I don't have to do because God loves me and you, dearie. 
That's, as you can imagine, we had a great time walking on, talking all the way across the store. In fact, I was sad the store wasn't bigger because she was a wealth of, of brilliant stuff in the Lord. I'm sure her joints hurt from bending over stocking shelves. I'm certain her mountain climb that day had serious difficulties because everybody's does. But she knew, she knew how to execute God's plan. She stayed on that objective of serving me in love, doing what she didn't have to do because God loved her and me. Once again, God empowers us to do this. Look, at, look in the text. God's gift for our daily execution, what does he give us? He gives us the law of love. You see, Jesus laid out a new law, one that comes in his name, in the ethos of the God-man who fulfills the law and the prophets. And his law is to love. That's what Paul's referencing in verse 14. Matthew 22 has the quote. Uh, Jesus said to him, quoting from Deuteronomy, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus went on, expanded this, John 13, talking to all of his disciples. He said, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you do realize he died for you, don't you? Just as I have loved you, you also must love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. This is a gift, folks. This law is a gift. It is a blessing to know what works. If you're going to climb on in this life, you need to know what works and what doesn't. Love works. And notice that just as the Mosaic law marked Israel as a distinct people, so Jesus' law of love distinguishes the churches of Jesus. This is how they know you're Christians. God gives us the law of love so we can tell how we're doing with our freedom. And let me tell you, when you're doing well, you hear yourself saying things like this, well, that's why I'm here. I'm here to do what I don't have to do because God loves me and you. Conversely, the sign of trouble in my life, the sign of trouble in my execution of the climb is internecine warfare. Uh, verse 15 talks about this. Dakno is the big term. Big term in verse 16 is dakno. We translate it bite. Uh, it was an onomatopoeia. Uh, you like that? Charlie bit my finger. Yeah, right. Um, it, we, we it's an onomatopoeia. What that means is to the, the first century ear, this word dakno sounded like the, the sound that you make when you chomp on something. Okay, it was an onomatopoeia, chomp on something, all right? And Paul's developing this, saying that the, the, the meaning of bite here, used this way, it means bringing emotional and spiritual harm. Look how he describes the progression of these kind of attacks. He's showing me that I know something is wrong with the execution of my life climb when I am attacking other Christians. Look at, look at the progression. Bite, devour, consume. Boy, I heard that progression a lot during the recent American elections. And it is a sure sign that something is wrong with that Christian. Let me share a story with you. This comes from a mom in our church who wishes to remain anonymous, so I'll just read what she wrote me. She wrote and said, Wayne, my four kids move around the table in a clockwise circle each morning as they pack their lunches for school. So one is making a sandwich while the next one's putting carrots in a Ziploc and so on around the table. The other day, they were apparently inspired by a family reading of Winnie the Pooh the night before. As they moved around the packing table, they were chanting, T-I-double-G-U-R, T-I-double-G-U-R, T-I-double-G-U-R. The kindergartner, she writes, tried to echo, but instead she said, T-I-double-R-R. The oldest one stopped and corrected, no, that's not right without the G. Another sibling added, you need the G sound, you know, G, add the G and it will be all right. And then my friend finished her letter to me this way. She said, Wayne, as they finished moving around the table and scooted out the door, I thought of our recent discussions about grace at church. The kids are correct. 
It's not right without the G. Without the big G of grace, it's just a race. Close quote. Is your life more race than grace? Add the G. By God's grace, get back to the right trail, which is using your freedom for loving service. All God's people said, may it be so. Now, consider our final section. Let's read verses 16 through 26, which teaches us to continue the daily climb by following the Spirit. L listen to the Apostle Paul, verse 16. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I tell you about these things in advance, as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. We must not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Verses 16 and 25 reveal the objective. The objective is to walk by the Spirit. The, the text here is really instructive. Paul is a great Hebrew scholar, right? And he writes like a Hebrew here. He's using repetition to emphasize his point that Christians are meant to live each day under God's power. And he uses two specific Greek words to teach his point. Verse 16 has the verb parapateo. You see that? Parapateo. This is a word that has lasted thousands of years. In fact, it made its way into English as the word peripatetic, which is a fancy word for walking. It means having to do with walking. When it's used like this, peripateo means all of life's activities. Walk is shorthand for every single thing a person does. Verse 25, the term is stoikeo. Stoikeo means to keep in step. It was, it was first used, the first place we can find it in Greek is in a military text talking about the flanks, the, the line of, of Greek soldiers, Athenian soldiers, and how they had to stay in step with the leader. It also was used for keeping your weapons ready all the time. A little bit later, soikeo, this is fascinating, it was used to describe how the plants on earth all grow in harmony with the sun and the moon and the seasons and the years. In fact, Theophrastus, one of uh, one of Aristotle's disciples, one of his pupils, wrote, he used stoicheo. He said, he said, the morning glory is a stoicheo. It responds to the sun. It keeps in step with the sun. It opens in the morning. Okay, put these two particular verbs together. You got a really powerful lesson here, guys. All of my life, every activity of my life is to be according to the leadership of God's spirit. We live in harmony with the Spirit of God. He sets our march. He is our rising sun. We respond to Him. Now, this is where modern Christians tend to get really unhappy with me. Or more accurately, they get angry with God. You see, what we want are four easy steps to spiritual victory, right? That's what we want. We want physical, detailed, how-to, self-help guides. And God laughs in our faces. I'm telling you, he laughs at us here. Look what he does. He purposely describes God the Spirit here in the most non-physical, nebulous term possible. He calls the person of the Trinity who lives with us, indwells us, guides us, the pneuma. It's a word that means wind or air. That, that's why it came into English as pneumatic, a term for air pressure. 
right? This is not a solid thing. There is nothing less detailed how-to or self-help than the wind. We can't control the wind. We can't even see it. We can only see the effects of it. And yet that is supposed to be our daily guide. We're supposed to keep in step with something that's invisible. How is that possible? It's possible in the same way that my kite flies in the air. I launch the kite up into the air so that it can catch the breeze. And then it moves according to how the wind blows. Likewise, I must daily throw my life up into God's leadership. Every day, I need to spiritually, internally cast myself on the power and the guidance of God. And then I can respond throughout the day according to His guidance. I was discussing this with David Wade of our pulpit team. He sent me a great insight. Look what he wrote. He said, Wayne, the old pastor A.B. Simpson had this to say. This is an interior life, a spiritual life. And many persons do not know this and do not want it. It holds too constant a check upon the heart. It requires too utterly that we should walk softly with our God. Most persons like to be their own masters. And the habit of walking step by step with God and submitting every thought and desire to an inward monitor is intolerable to their imperious self-will or at least unfamiliar to their experience. Close quote. Simpson brings up one of the main reasons why you and I don't like to keep in step with God's spirit. We like to be in charge. When people write me after this sermon airs, I'll receive a lot of mail, and it's wonderful. Many of the people who write me will express something like this in, uh, in their favorite uh, Jimmy Stewart imitation. They'll say, you know, I just, I, I, I just want something solid. I, I want specific things to do in order to continue my daily climb, right? And I will totally commiserate. I understand. And I will kindly write them back, and I will point out that that wish is, at its core, a desire to be in charge. That defeats the whole purpose of keeping in step with the spirit, the pneuma. Another reason we don't like to practice this spiritual walking by the spirit is it sounds an awful lot like all those weirdos that pepper Christian history, right? You, you know what I mean. Those kooks who say that they hear audible voices from God, right? Or, or our, our precious but strange brethren who teach that you should approach the triune God like he's some kind of pagan deity where you seek him through an oracle or the right formula. It's mysterious, superstitious, creepy, hocus-pocus nonsense. It is. So our tendency is to recoil from these mystics and, and just stop engaging with the Spirit altogether. But that is a serious mistake. Chuck Swindoll wrote an excellent book about this. He titled it, Flying Closer to the Flame. In that book, our dear neighbor down the street does a wonderful job showing how we can, we must respond to God's leadership along our daily climb. Listen, please listen. God will never move us in any way that is contrary to his revealed scripture in the Bible. You know what that means? That means that when I daily surrender to God's spirit to guide me, he will use God's words to guide me, not the picture of Jesus in my toast. All right? Once again, God provides the means for us to continue in this, even when the going gets tough. Look at verse 17. Remind yourself of how tough it can be. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit. Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so you don't do what you want. Can't we all relate to this? Can't we? It, anybody here ever have a hard time staying on a diet? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you've ever had. Just one hand will do. Thank you. Uh, good. Yeah. Even that small thing is very tough for us, right? In, in the parallel passage to this in Romans, Paul points out that because of our sinful flesh, we don't do the things we really should do and that we want to do. Instead, we perform the very things we hate. And so, so God gives us his spirit. He gives us his spirit whom we can follow step by step. Verse 18, 
But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, right? When we let God lead, we can do what is best and not what is wrong. And this means we are actively doing good. Please don't be fooled by the kite illustration into thinking we're just sitting back and doing nothing. We're, we're in step, it says. That implies activity that we're taking all the time under God's direction. J.I. Packer put it this way, his, his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit. Look what he said. The Holy Spirit's ordinary way of working through us, in us is through the working of our own minds and wills. He moves us to act by causing us to see reasons for moving ourselves to act. Thus, our conscious, rational selfhood, so far from being annihilated, is strengthened. And in reverent, resolute obedience, we work out our salvation. And he says then, see Galatians 5. The song, Sometimes by Step, is Rich Mullen's attempt to capture this gift, the gift of keeping in step with the Spirit. This is what God's given us to stay alive and well on the mountain. Quoting from the Psalms, these are all quotes from the Psalms. Rich Mullins wrote this, Oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. Oh God, you're my God, and I will ever praise you. I will seek you in the morning and learn to walk in your ways. And step by step, you'll lead me, and I will follow you. How long, everybody? All of my days. All God's people said? Amen. The second gift for continuing our journey is the resulting fruit of the Spirit. Right, when we follow God's guidance, there's this beautiful result, and I see it in your lives all the time. In fact, it's part of what makes my life so wonderful. When I see your love and your joy and your peace and your patience and your goodness and your faithfulness and your gentleness and your kindness and your self-control, it, it changes everything. When you have these traits flowing in and out of your heart, you prosper on the climb. Oh, you're still, you still face storms. But the spirit fruit means that you will prosper no matter what. You will prosper no matter what. One of our elders, Paul Hahn, he sent me a really interesting article. It's a Money Magazine article, and it, it listed out most of the fruit of the spirit under this headline. This is the headline. These traits will make you filthy rich. Hilariously, and I think tragically, I read the article, and this dude had absolutely no idea he had stumbled onto a biblical scripture. He had no idea that this is exactly what God's Spirit provides. All he knew was he looked at life and said, these traits will change your life. And my prayer is that each of us is rich in the Spirit. Because if we have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, then all the earthly stuff doesn't matter. Amen? Finally, Paul wraps up with the signs of trouble. These are signs of trouble in my continuation. It starts with works of the flesh. Can we not all relate to verses 19 through 21? Please say yes. I stalk you on Facebook. I know that you struggle with these. Even when you don't know that you struggle with them, I know you do. My main, you know what my main concern is? My main concern is that you and I know that we struggle. Verse 17 showed us when we don't walk in the spirit, we be, by default live in the flesh. Our, our sin nature then produces ugliness, this kind of junky product, because we're plugged into the wrong power source. But one of the big, pro one of the big problems is that Christians can be really good at pretending. We try to show the fruit of the spirit, right? But we do, it, we do it through our own flesh power. And for a little while, we even fool ourselves and possibly a few others. But eventually, we see that such fruit is rotten at its core. We must be brutally honest about this. Look, look, if I was heading up on a 14,000-foot technical climb, right, and, and my belay rope was frayed, would Shane be doing me any good by telling me, oh, no, your rope's fine, it's fine. Would, would that be any help to me? Or, at all? Jeremy, would that be a help to me? No, would I be doing myself any favor at all if I lied to myself and said, no, no, my rope looks good? No, I wouldn't. That way leads to death. That's why the Apostle Paul says, such will not inherit the kingdom. Now, one more quick theological moment. This matters. 
There are two orthodox possibilities regarding what he means here. You need to think it through and see which one you think is right. There are only two, but there are two that are possibilities within orthodoxy. One, he may mean that this person who exhibits the fruit of the flesh was never justified. He or she never trusted Jesus and thus is going to be excluded from the Messiah's kingdom. That's what a couple of the great reformers thought. Uh, Theodore Beza taught that. So did John Knox. Um, if you go to our wonderful brethren churches, the Acts 29 churches around the world right now, that's what they teach. They teach that. The other possible meaning is that Christians who operate, the, operate by the flesh, they're going to lose glory, and they will not participate fully in the kingdom work during the millennium of Christ. They, they still have the permanent inheritance of God's redeemed child. They just won't be allowed to run the family business, right? This was the view of John Calvin, another of the great reformers. It's also my perspective. I think that Calvin is correct. But listen, on whichever side of this you fall, you need to know the flesh is not your friend. It is a sign of trouble, and it is going to lead you into one kind or the other of very serious danger. Same for Paul's final thought in verse 26. This is what I call conceited provocations. The key word is envying one another. It's a real danger sign when we are jealous of other human beings. It is often expressed in our pettiness with them, how, how we try to tear them down or be passive-aggressive or pick fights with them. Conceited provocations. Listen. Conceited provocations especially show up, I've noticed this in my life, when, when I'm trying to do what I think is spiritual, but I'm doing it from the flesh. I am not living a life that is abandoned to God. I am not plugged into His Spirit. With that in mind, I want to give us a short assessment. Six little questions for you that I want you to answer. Very simple. The answer to each one is either A, B, or C. Okay? A, B, or C. You can probably keep them in your head. You can scribble them down if you want to. Here's the questions. Number one, someone in your family is in a bad mood. What do you do? A, bluntly tell him to snap out of it. B, avoid him so the bad attitude won't rub off on you, right? C, remind yourself how much you love him even when he's crabby. Question number two, you finally got the dentist paid off. Now you need a root canal. How do you react? A, you're angry because it doesn't seem fair. You think you'll never get out of debt. B, you're discouraged, but you keep quiet around others, secretly jealous of their perfect teeth. C, you don't know where the money will come from, but you sense, and this is really true, you sense an inner joy as you anticipate learning more about God's ability to provide. You, you still don't want the root canal. Question three, you don't like the man that your daughter or, or sister or mother is dating. How do you respond? A, you tell her that he's a jerk and she's running her life and yours. B, you try to act excited for her, but you worry about what might develop, maybe literally. C, you reflect on God's control of every situation. You, you express your concerns, and then you pray like crazy. <clears throat> Number four, you've been standing in a line for an hour. Just as you reach the counter, the clerk sets out a sign that reads, close for lunch, back in an hour. <laughs> you, A, angrily vent on social media and write a scathing Yelp review. B, you remain calm in the building, but on the way home, you rehearse everything you could have said. <laughs> C, you explain your situation. You ask the clerk for help. If there's no solution, you relax, knowing that God must have other plans. Question five. Your elderly uncle tells you the story about his childhood that you have heard a dozen times before. How do you respond? A, you tell him you've heard this story over and over, and you ask him why he doesn't remember telling it. <laughs> B. You act interested, but your mind's a million miles away. You later take a little subtle dig at his failing memory when you're with the rest of the family. 
holy cow, you're so convenient. You should see your faces right now. <laughs> Just see, which I don't think will apply to anyone based on what I'm seeing on your faces. See, you keep listening, realizing God has given him a rich store of experiences. You ask questions to see what more you can learn. Final one, number six, the boss yells at you for something, uh, for something you weren't responsible for. How do you handle it? A, you yell back, accusing him of not getting all the facts. B, you listen without responding, but when he's gone, you calmly tell everyone in the office your version, asking for their opinions. Absalom, if I were king. C, you answer him gently, giving yourself time to think through what has happened. You ask, you ask God what to do, trusting him with the outcome. All right. Now, look at all those, and you notice a pattern. I only have to show you the last one, and you'll, you'll remember the pattern. The pattern was this. All the A answers I gave you are our fleshly default. This is how we act naturally in the flesh. This is verses 19 through 21, okay? The, the B answers are conceited provocations. That's verse 26. That's our other danger sign. B answers are, are verse 26, conceited provocations. When we see A and B, it's a warning to us that we are out of step with the Spirit. The C answer is what we want to see, no pun, in ourselves. Amen? But we didn't honestly answer C on many of those, did we? So pray with me. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we can see, see answers in our lives. Lord, I, I, I thank you that you provide so much for us, and I pray that we will be wise enough and humble enough to plug into your spirit, your love, your grace, that we'll stop falling out of it. And Lord, please... Please, you love, you love us so much, and I love your people. I beg you to point out to us all the A and B answers that are in our lives. Let those warning signs drive us right where we need to go, to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.